0: When I thought about what I might uh, do a talk on this evening, at first I was going to do a more formal Buddhist talk on paramitas, the kind of inner qualities of our own Buddha nature, or a, a talk on the Buddha's last teachings from the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Um, But as I had the group today and talked with people and walked around and so forth, um, I felt so much how people are getting ready to go back tomorrow morning and that maybe speaking more informally would be helpful. You're a little bit like new babies. You don't know it, but you don't have um, the kind of uh, thick skins that you grow as an adult. Um, so much anymore, and I mean, we see it in your faces. You know, as the as the weeks and weeks go on, you look younger. You really look radiant. It's quite beautiful to see. Even you come in and you're suffering, and you're grouchy, and you feel like a failure, and you're ashamed, and you're angry, and whatever those you know things aren't don't seem like they're working. There's this this just this beautiful quality of getting younger and more open and innocent. It's lovely to see. I think we could kind of market this, you know, as a. <laughs> mm-hmm. Before and after photos, Marie said. It? Mm. And that's in contrast to this article I got from the paper recently. Um, Associated Press, a man got on a subway train at rush hour yesterday, died, and his body rode the train for six hours before passengers notified anyone. The man in his forties had no visible sign of struggle or difficulty. Uh, The police don't know where he boarded the train, but believe they had died at least five or six hours before. They speculated no one noticed him because the train was so crowded and people in New York in such a hurry. Do you know how many people sleep on the train during rush hour, said one subway rider, Mario Luchari. Hey, unless the guy slumps into me, I just leave him alone. So <clears throat> there is a kind of beautiful sensitivity that you see in your conversations here with one another. And then when you go out and you get in line at the airport or you go you know, into traffic on Highway 101 and things like that, And you feel like you're just kind of mindfully driving along. And then people behind, come on, hurry up. Why are you going so slow? Um, There are people who are in um, other speeds and other states. And who are, uh, um, as that story illustrates, maybe not so attentive to what's going on around them. I got a phone call some time ago, kind of late in the year from a, a, a woman who writes for various magazines, everything from the New Yorker to uh, Vogue and so forth. And she was doing an article, it was either for Cosmo or Vogue or something, about New Year's resolutions and she said, I would like you to speak, to, to, to talk in this article about lasting change. And I said, what? You're calling a Buddhist, right? She said, Yeah, what makes things, you know, like a New Year's resolution? How do you get things to change and so they'll stay that way? <laughs> so this talk somehow comes out of that question. Because I began to reflect on what really does make changes in us, maybe not lasting changes. Um, uh, a text, Buddhist text. One certain day when the Buddha dwelt at uh, uh, the monastery at Jetavana, a celestial deva of unsurpassed radiance appeared in the evening in the grove before him. Garments were radiant as well and paid respects to the Buddha and asked some questions. What is the sharpest sword, asked the deva, and the deadliest poison? What is the fiercest fire and the darkest night? And the Buddha sat, radiant in his own being, and replied, A word spoken in wrath is the sharpest sword. Covetousness, the deadliest poison. Hatred, the fiercest fire. Ignorance, the darkest night. The deva smiled and went on, And what is the greatest gain? what is the greatest loss, what armor is invulnerable, and what is the best weapon? And the Buddha, smiling again, replied, the greatest gain is to give to others. The greatest loss is to receive without gratitude. Patience is an invulnerable armor, and wisdom is the best of all weapons. But deva continued, Who's the most dangerous thief? What's the most precious treasure? And the Buddha replied, Unskillful thought is the most dangerous thief. And virtue, the most precious treasure. What is attractive? What is unpleasant? What is the most horrible of pains? What's the greatest enjoyment? The Buddha replied, Wholesomeness or skillfulness of heart is attractive. Unwholesomeness unpleasant. A bad conscience is the most tormenting of pain, and awakening is the height of bliss. And then the deva went on. I have but one more question to be cleared away. What is it that fire cannot burn, moisture corrode, nor wind crush down? but is able to benefit beings and the whole of the world, here and in any other realm." And the Buddha replied, Blessings. And by this word, he meant the blessings of our goodness. Neither fire, nor moisture, nor wind can destroy the blessings of a good deed, or the blessings of benefit that we have done for ourselves or the world. And hearing these answers, the radiant Deva was filled with joy bowed down in respect, light illuminated beyond the grove in every direction, and then vanished suddenly from the presence of the Buddha. I think that there's a certain way, not kind of to overdo it, in which you're going to be the Davis going out from here. Um, And it's true when you get out and turn onto the Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, you need to be attentive because the cars are going faster there than you think they are or than you remember, you know, and we've had people leave retreat and kind of drive out and be going like 25 miles an hour and think that they're really speeding along (laughs) quite rapidly. So it's going to take a little blending of your energy. But with this, you also carry from these weeks together a peacefulness and openness of being and a kind of wisdom that's not by your words but by your presence. When I look at what has developed or grown in my own spiritual life, there's a great dialogue that's taken place since the time of the Buddha about how we change. The the debate is between the gradual and the sudden schools. The sudden schools say that there has to be a shock, a break from the ordinary, some amazing experience that takes us out of our normal and small self way of seeing the, uh, of seeing the world. From the astronomer Carl Sagan he wrote after surviving a near fatal illness, I recommend almost dying to everybody it's character building. You get a much clearer perspective of what's important and what isn't, the preciousness and beauty of life. And there's some way, which has happened to everyone on this retreat, in which we have moments of stepping out of the small sense of self, of seeing the dream-like illusion of the mind, and the reality of just this timeless present. And it can change our whole life see that. A near-death experience, grace while walking in the hills here. You know, the majority of Americans, when they were polled by a uh, a psychologist, the majority of Americans said that they had experienced some kind of mystical awakening at some time or other. I think I mentioned this earlier in the retreat, and most of them didn't want to have one again. (laughs) because they didn't know what to do with it. But in this place we have the context that says those experiences that you know already are really true and fundamental and they're there for you as you live and they're there as you die. They're really treasures. So there's the school that says you've got to have these special experiences and sometimes they come, they do. But then there's the gradual school, where the Buddha said, just as the great oceans um, do not descend precipitously to their depth, but gradually the land under the ocean goes down and they get deeper and deeper, so too does our spiritual practice gradually deepen stage by stage, year by year, until we too become deep like the ocean. And in this way, it's not some insight or some letting go, or some awakening. But it's the ripening of the heart, like a piece of fruit, a mango, perfectly ripe mango, ripening in kindness, ripening in letting go, ripening in presence, ripening in compassion, ripening in that ability to accept the whole of this human world of birth and death. Little by little, you know, one of the few items of the news worth reporting during this last couple of months is that the Pope went to the, the Holy Land, went to Israel, and went around visiting various places. And a few days ago, he went to the Wailing Wall, the Old Temple in Jerusalem, and as people do, put they put little letters in the cracks, they pull them up and stick them in there. The Pope wrote a note which he read out loud, which was in part an apology for all the suffering that had been caused by um, the misunderstanding or the misuse of Christian teachings for Jews and others over these many, many years, and asked for atonement and placed it in the wall. It was a very beautiful act. It took 2,000 years to get to it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, take it when you can get it, right? There is something about the ripening. Um, one of my dear friends, Yvonne Rand, who is a Zen teacher, has the, uh, and a disciple of Suzuki Roshi, has the most exquisite uh, zendo and altar, and ancient Japanese and Chinese calligraphy, and, and uh, fantastic Tibetan deities and Buddhas. And right hanging over her altar is a beautiful scroll written in English with the phrase, It takes as long as it takes. And then it's signed, Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, something like that. And that's the thing that's in the center of her altar in her uh, zendo. This is the gradual path that really we're planting seeds and we're growing like a garden and it doesn't matter if it takes you a month or two months or a year or ten years or twenty or a lifetime. I mean, what else is there to do? You want to cultivate greed, hatred, and delusion? I mean, it's too late. You can't go back. You're stuck. (laughs) You've seen it. So we just carry on. I like this poem and it was written by a woman who's an acquaintance who had a disease disease has a disease called brittle bone disease which meant that even as she <clears throat> tried to learn to walk as a child every time she fell or often when she fell she'd break a bone she said i broke 15 bones before i learned to walk take the time to pray It is the sweet pray and meditate. Take the time to meditate and pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden. So the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. These stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. And when asked who was that they'll say, oh that one has been beloved by us since before time began. And this from people who would have trampled over you to maintain their advantage. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. And so you're going to go out, as we all have, in and out of retreats, as newborn babies and as Buddhas and as carriers of seeds and as blessings. planting the garden. For myself, it wasn't at all what I thought as I've come and gone from retreats. And I've told these stories a lot of times. I started to practice because of a lot of suffering and pain in my childhood and my family life. Very, very difficult. Anybody else have a lot of family pain? (laughs) Never mind. And I studied Buddhism in the university, and I studied Chinese, and I studied Lao, and I studied Thai, and I studied the suttas, and I found teachers, and I meditated, and I had visions, and, you know, understanding, and insight, and all of that. It was great. For about ten years, did it with my mind. Then I found that mind wasn't enough. And when I came back to live in uh, Western culture again. um, I realized how much I had bypassed my emotions, you know the spiritual bypass, the end run. And I began to do the work of the heart. Metta, compassion meditation, various forms of um, practices, just to reclaim the emotions that were lost. And then, as I began to learn to feel in ways that even in the monastery were close to me, I also began to realize that, um, kind of working my way down the chakras, that my body had been kind of left out. I used it. I used to climb mountains. I love mountain climbing. and I could sit for hours and hours and hours as a yogi and, you know, do all this kind of stuff that young men do. Um, Here I am changing posture, right? Making myself comfortable. (laughs) But I realized um, that uh, it doesn't work to ignore your body uh, any more than it does to ignore the earth around us. Um, And that to live an awakened life is not just the understanding or even love, but that it really has to be embodied in how we move and how we walk on this earth and how we carry the truth of the species of this world. You know, even in the forest monasteries for a long time, they would just throw their dirt, on the, their, their garbage on the ground. Mostly that's because the garbage was banana leaves that were used to wrap things and everything was kind of organic and it would just disappear back into the forest. But then, plastic bags came along and the habit was, well, the forest will take care of it, and they just threw stuff in the forest. It was horrendous to see. Or they would meditate and be out with the deer and the tigers and all the kind of wildlife. There's this tremendous connection between the animals and the natural world and the tradition of monks and nuns, but then recently, Recently, meaning the last oh four or five decades, the forests have been cut down year by year. Till now, the forest monasteries are some of the last um, preserves, like national parks, of beautiful forest, and everything's clear cut around them. And the monks become now <coughs> the monks who thought that their practice was to sit and meditate and do metta for the rest of the world. Now go out and ordain trees and. Protect the forest and try to create a sense of the sacred where the logging companies and the generals and the corrupt people won't um, ruin the natural world. So even the Buddhist tradition has had to kind of come back down a little bit from um, the idealism. Do you understand that? Learn something that's more connected. It's there in the teachings, but people have to learn it when we were at a meeting in Dharamsala of teachers with the Dalai Lama and 30 or 40 other Tibetan Lamas and Western Zen masters and meditation teachers and so forth. We've had a series of these teacher meetings and partly it was to talk about what works and what makes the Dharma really flower in the West. Beautiful conversations. Partly it was to talk about difficulties and um, in that conversation, at one point, um, Sylvia Wetzel, who's a friend of several of ours, a teacher in Germany, um, said, I want, I want to address the issue of women in Buddhism, because Buddhism's been very patriarchal and doesn't treat women uh, terribly well over the centuries. And so she said, Your Holiness and Assembled Lamas, I'd like to teach you a meditation, which was already nerve, you know, great, here we are the Dalai Lama and all these High Lamas, I'd like to teach you a meditation, please close your eyes. She didn't ask if they wanted to, she just said do it. Go Sylvia, right? She said, now I'd like to teach you a visualization since you're also expert at visualization. said, I would like to visualize that you're coming into this room in the palace of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, but that it's changed slightly as you walk in. And what the change is is that you see in front of you the 14th Dakini Dalai Lama, who's always been born in a woman's body. And there she is, gracious and hosting, and surrounded by all her advisors who are also women, every one of them. And then you look around, and there's big statues of the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas, and they're all females, mostly a few small male figures at the bottom, you know. <laughs> and then all these great tankas on the walls around, and they're all wonderful, enlightened representations of the female Buddha. And of course, um, uh, then you open the sacred text and they say that women and men are equal um, and that it's possible to attain enlightenment in a male body, although not as easy as in a female body. And One might make some prayers for a, male bo- for a female body. Um, but it is possible and we welcome you to our community if you wouldn't mind sitting in the back and helping with the cooking occasionally. <laughs> And then she stopped and rang the little bell, and they opened their eyes. <laughs> and it was, a, it was like uh, some insight had happened <laughs> to these lamas. It was a moment of revelation. And then Ani Tenzin Palmo, who's a, an English nun, Tibetan nun, who spent 12 years in a cave on the border of Tibet, a very beautiful being, talked about really how hard it was for women in Buddhist temples, even to get food, even to get teachings. And she was she's so humble and reverent and honest at the same time that the Dalai Lama put his head in his hands and just began to weep. He said, "I didn't know it was this bad for women." and vowed to make some changes. Um, so I tell you that story, along with the, you know, the ordaining of trees. For you to understand that there's some way in which we collectively share a consciousness together and that we're all learning. Isn't that interesting? There's nobody who has the answer or the way, but we're all moment by moment unfolding into the expression of this wisdom that we find in our hearts. Now for me some of the things that were the most important, first was meeting my teacher that really made a, a change to, you know, go into the forest monastery and meet Ajahn Chah. And he used to just peer at people, you know, like a watchmaker taking off see how, what would make them tick. He'd say, what are you here for? And you could answer on whatever level you dared, you know, because he really, he really meant it. What are you here for? Um, and there were little signs as you went into the monastery, things that would say, you know, you there be quiet, we're trying to awaken, how about you, you know, things like that. Um, his presence had a combination of warmth and peacefulness and humor um, or spaciousness and a fearlessness, no need to control things, he just liked to see the dance of the world. When we brought Ramdas there in 76, Joseph and Myself and a group of people went traveling to Burma and Thailand, back to places we'd practice, and we brought Ramdas with us at that point. And gosh, we were probably in our, you know, early thirties, maybe late twenties, early thirties, and Ramdas was in his late forties, so he was the old guy in the group. Um, but he'd just been in Bali, kind of um, surfing and sunning himself, and he was really into. Fitness and yoga and stuff like that, and you know, buffed Ramdas. And so we all sat down with Ajahn Chah and he looked at the group. First thing he'd say, Hey, who's the old man you brought with you? I mean, this is just like his opening gambit. Um, He had a lot of humor and he just told the truth. This is the way things are. Um, And to meet somebody who wasn't afraid to just describe how things were. You know, if someone was having a hard time suffering, say, you're suffering, aren't you? Yeah, must be very attached, you know, and you'd laugh, say, you know, as you like, carry on. <laughs> time for you to do as you see fit, you know. Very spacious, and at the same time, um, carrying this joy. And to meet even one person in your life, and you've all met a number, to meet one person like that um, has, a, has an incredible effect because it reminds you of what's possible in yourself. Um, Suzuki Roshi, when he was described by uh, Trudy Dixon in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, she said the qualities of his life are extraordinary. Buoyancy, vigor, straightforwardness, simplicity, humility, serenity, joyousness, uncanny perspicacity, and unfathomable compassion. In the end, it's not the extraordinariness of the teacher which perplexes, intrigues, deepens the student. It is the teacher's utter ordinariness, because he or she is just themselves. They are a mirror for their students, and in their presence, we see our own original face, and the extraordinariness we see is only our own true nature. And just to be with someone who lives in the reality of the present and doesn't want anything from you, wants nothing. is such a gift because it reminds us what it's like to be that free. Another great blessing that makes a huge change is simply hearing the Dharma. When I first heard the Tao, the the law, the teachings of the way, the Dharma, the Four Noble Truths that there is suffering, oh, what a relief to have somebody say it. Life is hard. There is suffering. You know, it's not just you or you or you or some mistake. It's the way it is. And that there's a cause for suffering. Grasping. Clinging and that there's a release, that there's an end to suffering, that there really is a freedom of the heart that's possible. As Suzuki Roshi said, when we understand the fact that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. That things are the way they are and they change as they do. And what was beautiful about Ajahn Chah is that he kept pointing to things the way they are, not the way we wish them to be, but the way they are, and the incredible freedom in being with things as they are. And don't mistake that it doesn't mean we tend to things or care for them with compassion, but that things are the way they are. And part of the way they are is that we care for them. Suffering, its cause, its end, and then a path to live wisely, the middle path not grasping, not resisting, the path of opening to life as it is. The Eightfold Path is how we spoke about generosity, integrity, wise speech, wise action. They are our true nature. And what the Dharma does is remind us of this possibility. And it's been preserved for 2,500 years, this form for us. And as you leave, you carry it. Like those seed packets, you carry the Dharma. It's said that the Dharma will stay alive in this world as long as there is someone at every moment practicing it. That that's what sustains the Dharma. So you are part of what keeps it alive. And it's beautiful. A friend of mine who... um, travels, uh, went to Lake Baikal on some business to Siberia, and because they were interested in Buddhism and got to know the provincial governor, said, is there any Buddhist temples that are left around? No, no, they'd all been destroyed in that area, but kept pressing, asked the translator and a few people, and then someone said, wait, come with me, and drove them out in the country to this huge old um, Catholic or Christian Russian Orthodox monastery and rang the bell and this old babushka came to the gate you know and opened it what do you want and some conversation in Russian she said come in and brought him into the church and they walked through the church and then they went to the back of the church to another great big chapel and she unlocked the chapel and then she unlocked the gate inside the chapel where you could see all the things and they walked in. And then she went behind where all the beautiful Christian things were, unlocked a door and then there was a gate behind that, and the keys and unlocked that. And then opened this room behind all that. And it was filled with golden Buddhas and tunkas and treasures. The temple, she said, was going to be burned. And we rescued these and saved them for them until they build their temple again. You carry with you from the temple that treasure. It's in you as well. And having heard the Dharma already changes your life. Because you can't pretend you haven't heard it. What also makes changes, as we know, is the kind of retreats we do. Whether it's a week or a month or two months or years. And Because in the beginning you're sleepy and restless and we all are and dealing with all those difficulties, which don't go away. But as we sit, something begins to shift. And most fundamentally, there's a shift of kindness and compassion. Instead of struggling against the world, we realize that we can be present for it with an open heart, as I did. And then we begin to realize that who we thought we are, were is just this small set of ideas and feelings and fears. And you all know those moments when you were caught in something and then space opens up and you say, wow, boy, I was really in that one for a couple of days, wasn't I? Or a couple of hours or a couple of weeks or however long it was, you know. And how fantastic it is to know the reality that this small sense of self is only a little bit of what this world is about. And the opening becomes deeper and deeper, and it happens in so many different ways. Sometimes it's with grief and tears. Sometimes it's with rapture and bliss. I mean, I remember the first, oh, I was doing a long retreat, a year, well, fourteen or fifteen months in silence like this one and I was really determined to practice and sit and walk and not have any distraction but I got sleepy a lot so I would sleep on the wooden floor without a mattress that way I wouldn't sleep too long just lie down sleep for a couple hours and get up and I was lying down sleeping on the wooden floor determined I wasn't gonna sleep more than a couple hours and get up and sit and walk again this little hut I was in I was doing my walking meditation so I got back up and I stood up mindfully, and I walked to the end of the hut, this little room, and then I turned around very mindfully. I was determined to get up and practice. And as I turned around, I looked, and there was my body lying on the floor. And I realized that I was so tired that my body didn't want to get up. It wouldn't wake up. But I had made such a strong intention, I am going to get up and walk, that my astral body got up. And it started to do walking meditation. And then I was a little bit shocked. I said, whoa, this is really interesting, you know? And I, this is started to walk back closer to my body, and as I got and I kind of looked down, at who this is, you know? And then I fell back into my body and my eyes opened, and we got up together after that, right? It's not that that has to happen to somebody or anybody. That's one of a thousand different things that happen. But in some way or other, we all know through this time together, that the small stories we tell are not what is real. And it's such a blessing, it's such freedom, because our suffering comes from that identification with what's small. And this teaches us in a way um, that almost nothing else can. Emily Dickinson wrote, I never saw a moor, I never saw the sea, yet I know how Heather feels, and what a wave must be. She was very protected, but yet something in her knew, and something in us knows, and it draws us here, and then there's this confirmation, yes, it's true, there is freedom. So that when my father was dying in the hospital, and Eugene talked so much about his father, when my father was dying, and he was so frightened, and I sat with him, and. Held his hand, you know, all these kinds of meditations I tried to teach him that he couldn't really learn at the last moment. Maybe I've talked about him before on this retreat, but it's very hard to learn to, you know, meditate if you've been practicing paranoia for 75 years. 15 minutes of meditation instruction doesn't do it very well. But what he wanted, he said, just please don't go, just stay with me and sit. Um, all night, or late, again and again. Um, And it was mostly he wanted somebody there who wasn't so afraid. You know what I'm saying. And in some way we've done that for one another. You may have been afraid, or you may have been afraid. And then there were all these Buddhists sitting around you, saying, it's okay, we can do this. We can sit under the Bodhi tree and let Mara do the dance of, you know, the demons and so forth. And it's okay. We can rest on the earth in this great heart of compassion and in this freedom that is our true nature. What's also been blessings, besides hearing the Dharma and meeting a great teacher, and, you know, the confirmation that comes from our practice, those seeds that get planted, for me has been a lot of work of healing. As I said, when I came back from the monastery, I was basically emotionally retarded. I suppose that's the politically incorrect way to say it, but it was true. Um, and I had skipped a lot of things in my spiritual practice. And I discovered that part of spiritual life is letting go and opening, and part of it is attending or a healing or a. Um, a holding, and so for me, over the years, beside my development of loving kindness and compassion practice, um, psychotherapy, body work, um, all different kinds of healing that uh, have made a huge difference. I mean, for the first couple of years when I was working, kind of learning therapy, a lot of emotional stuff came out—rage and grief—and loss and things I didn't even know were in there poured out. And they came out in the presence of another kind person. I think they were too much for me to do on my own. They wouldn't even come up when I sat. But they did in the presence of another, of a wise person. And then these holes, there were all these empty places. You know what I mean? Different places and I, I got body work, somebody was kind of doing various forms of body work and finally this person who was a healer, I said, I don't want massage, I don't want to be opened in that way, although that's lovely, I just want you to put your hand on my heart, or your hand here, and just be present with me for a while, and we did that for six months or a year, I would just go and lie down and this person who had very warm, kind of healing energy would just place their hands on my body in the places that felt the most empty And I would just rest with that. All these reactions and fears and tears and things would come, and they would just be there like that. I mean, I talked to Ramdas at one point about whether he ever did therapy with people some years ago. And he said, I do, but not in an ordinary form. I said, well, what do you do? He said, I only see people on occasion. Yes, I said, yeah, like once a year. And how do you work with them? said, well, I'll have them lie down in front of me, I sit next to them. I put my hand in their heart, I look into their eyes, and we stay that way for two or three hours. And then if there's anything to say after that, we say it. I remember going to see Dora Kulf, who was a great Jungian analyst and the developer of Sandplay Therapy, that Union therapy that uses a little sandbox and all these figures. She was in her 80s then and she was really the wise woman. And I went into her room and there were 20,000 figures from trees to boats to soldiers to anything you could imagine, all in miniature, the whole world, in this tray of sand. And I sort of knew the instructions, you know, that this was what she called a free and protected space, but I wanted her to tell me I said, so what should I do? And she laughed and she said, anything you like. And I felt in that moment that I had waited maybe even for lifetimes to be in the presence of someone who made that kind of invitation. Anything you like. And I began to take figures and it wasn't what was in my mind but it came from such a deep place to just pick this animal and that figure place them in the sand as if it was a language that was way older than anything I'd ever learned. And very beautiful and very healing. So there's a whole component of meditation that's healing of the spiritual journey. And a lot of healing takes place on retreats, as we know and some of it will take place as you go back and tend your body or tend your relationships or tend the things that arise. A couple more things that have been particularly blessings and important in my own spiritual journey. Family, marriage. You know it's one thing to love a hundred thousand people in matta, in your thoughts. Send it in every direction. And it's another to live with somebody and love them. You know what I mean? <laughs> Somehow in the immediacy of it. Um, and yet that's actually where practice comes alive. It doesn't come alive in um, the general, but in what uh, Blake called the minute particulars. I'll read you a poem. It's good to use the best china, The most genuine goblets, the oldest lace tablecloth. There's a risk, of course, every time we use anything or anyone shares an intimate moment, a fragile cup of revelation. You could feel that risk even as we speak here and so openly with one another. But not to touch, not to handle the artifacts of being human is the quiet crash, the deadly catastrophe where nothing is enjoyed or broken, spilled or spoken, where nothing is stained or mended, where nothing is ever lived, loved, laughed over, wept over, where nothing is ever lost or found." And for me it felt so important to enter into an intimate relationship as well with another. Um, And in some way All the meditation was preparation for that kind of loving as well. Ajahn Chah used to say that meditation isn't to have experiences. Meditation is to quiet the mind and open the heart so that you can live wisely, so that we can see where we're frightened and attached and learn how to release that and really be free. So after a series of very difficult or disastrous relationships, because I wasn't very good at it, and most of us aren't in the beginning, coming back from monastery and so forth. I finally met my wife and fell in love, and uh, we had a lot of difficulty in the beginning in our marriage, because we're so opposite. She's very introverted, and an artist, and a quiet person, and a very um, kind of she's the holder of sacred space in a beautiful way in our home and very tender and slow. My daughter teases her. She said, Mom, you have two speeds, slow and pause, right? (laughs) And I'm, you know, the opposite. I'm the extrovert and I'm pretty busy and running around. You know, my daughter will say to me, Dad, I think it's time for you to go and meditate, right? She's I'm running around too much. And she said from the beginning, I don't want to be the minister's wife. I'm not into this kind of social thing, you know. But anyway, we tried to fit our two lives together, and my daughter was born. And I remember at one point, shortly after my daughter was born, carrying her in the backpack, we were at a retreat. And my wife had given me this book called The Goddesses in Every Woman um, by Jean Boland. And it's because we had this daughter, she said, you should read this. It's a Jungian book about different aspects of female psychology, Greek goddesses, you know. And uh, so I started to read it, and I looked at it, and we were taking the walk, and she said, so did you read this book? We share things. I said, yeah, and I, I love the strength of the Artemis woman, and the beauty of the Aphrodite. There was one, one chapter in there I didn't relate to so much, that's Hestia was not so well-known as a goddess. She's also Vestal in Rome, and it's the goddess of hearth and home that doesn't have a temple or anything special but sort of invisible. And and as a minute I said I didn't relate to that, she grabbed the book from me, threw it on the ground, her eyes started to tear and she said I knew you never loved me. That's me! That's me! You know, and um, I was shocked. And I didn't know what to say. I just stood there for a moment because um, part of it was true and I looked at her after a bit and I said, you know, it's true. Um, And what I realized in that moment, we had a lot of talking to do at that point, but what I realized in that moment is even though we'd been together for several years and now had this baby and all this, that even and I knew she was a kind of quiet and introverted and these things, I kept hoping she would change. I kept hoping, I kept fantasizing what a good marriage would be, really if only she would be a little bit different than she was, and she'll grow into it, you know what I mean. And I didn't see her as she was, because I had so many unconscious ideas about how a person was supposed to be who I was with. Um, And it's been such a beautiful journey, slow in my case, um, to learn what it means to love a person, exactly for who they are. And how dharmic that is. Um, And how liberating that is. Completely liberating. And what a blessing it is, to because you're never loved in the way, certainly having a child when they're little, they look at you with this purity of love that's quite fantastic. And I guess I've worked my way back to, kind of, what I'd say, the blessings of ordinary life. Pirvilayat Khan, the head of the Sufi order in the West, now 75 years old or so, told me in one conversation, of the many great teachers and masters I've met in India and Asia, if you were to bring them to America, get them a house, two cars, a spouse, Three kids, a job, insurance, taxes. They would all have a hard time. What do you think? (laughs) Um, We go back and our personality returns and our habits return. You know, and I leave a retreat and I'm so, my, my daughter says, oh dad, you're so mellow and slow when you come out of retreats, you know. But then impatience comes back, and speediness comes back, and um, part of it's just our temperament. Two gentlemen of unsteady gait, tipsy, waited impatiently at the bus terminal late at night long after the buses had ceased to run. A couple hours passed before they realized in their drunkenness that the last bus was gone, so Seeing several buses parked at the depot, they decided to borrow one and drive themselves home. To their disappointment, they couldn't find the bus they wanted. Can you believe it? said one. A hundred buses and not a single number 36 in the lot. <laughs> Never mind, said the other. Let's take a 22 up to its last stop and we can walk the last two miles home. You'll see when you go back. Somebody asked Chögyam Trumpo what it is that's reborn. Remember, if there's no one to be reborn, what is it that's reborn? He said, oh, it's your bad habits, you'll see. Anyway, um, there's something about the ordinariness that's humorous and difficult, and at the same time incredibly precious, incredibly beautiful, um, because that's the place in the end that freedom happens. It happens always now. And to learn to live with love, to learn to breathe in the middle of our difficulties, to learn to let go of expectations in our marriage or our business or our, or our you know, partnership or with our children. To learn to feel our anger, but not to let it out right away. To feel the fear that's underneath it or the pain that's underneath it and really rest and work with that instead of just the reactiveness. To do metta when people are suffering or in traffic jams, to do compassion practice. To pick a few problems on this earth. You don't have to solve the problems of the earth. That would be awfully grandiose. But pick a few of them and plant beautiful seeds. To let yourself Move through this life and carry the seeds of this retreat and let them ripen like the ocean deepens. In so many ways. When we were in Bali, our driver, because you don't want to drive yourself in Bali very much, there's twisty roads, and so, so we had this driver taking us around. He was a lovely guy. He had this new Suzuki Super Kijang Jeep that he had. He was so proud, he'd just gotten, he was taking us around. And every time we came to an intersection, meep, meep, he'd honk, he'd really honk the horn loud, a horn loud, which is, in India, you know, you don't hardly need a motor, you need a horn, basically. You need maybe a steering wheel and a horn, and that gets you across <laughs> India. So he would be really loud. And so I said to him, we're going around Bali, and I said, why do you beep at each intersection? Is it because you have this new beautiful car and you don't want to get it to get damaged? And he said, oh no, not at all. He said, I come to the intersection and I honk the horn to call to the gods so that they should know that I'm coming and protect me as I go across the road so no one will be harmed. So in Bali, even you know, driving and honking the horn, there's some sacred activity in all of this. And I remember when we were in Bali with my daughter and my family, and since we grew up in, she grew up in California, there aren't any fireflies here. But there are in Bali, like there are in the East Coast when I grew up. So the first time we lived in Bali, she was six years old, and when I discovered this, she was already in her mosquito net, kind of getting ready to go to sleep, and we blew the candles out. And I said, wait here, I have something to show you, but you have to close your eyes and try to go to sleep. And they went out, and I caught a little jar of fireflies, and I brought them in. And I opened it, and I let them go inside her mosquito net, and the room was dark, and she had never seen them. And she was lying, saying, what is this? I mean, she'd heard of them. The insects with soft blinking lights, you know, that are flying around and that are sweet. I mean, who would have invented that? Think about it. Blinking lights on insects, you know. Phenomenal. Where did this come from? And that's the greatest gift of all, you know, to bring your heart, to, to know that you've touched some place of freedom in this retreat and to carry that back into the world, and to realize that we're not who we think we are, that there's such a huge game that's going on, and we're giving the ble- we're given the blessings of awakening to that mystery. And if you can see like that, that kind of innocence, that beginner's mind, even for a moment, each day. It can change your life and the life of people around you. One last little story. Do you know the book Ishii in Two Worlds by the Krobers? It's a a very poignant story. Ishii was the last of his Indian tribe in one of the California um, tribal areas. Um, And he was befriended by these two anthropologists. Uh, who tried to learn his language and the stories and everything about his people, um, and he came to live with them. and then he actually came and lived for part of the time in one in the in the museum, I think in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, um, and would teach people about the old ways of the natives of California. And he told all these different stories about his life and the tribal tales and took people back to his native, you know, uh, hunting grounds in the native lands and showed how baskets were made and how they found water and all these wonderful myths of the tribe. But there was one thing that he never was allowed to teach to the Krobers, who became his heart friends, his dearest friends. And that was cause you were sworn in this tribe never to teach the last song. And the last song was the song that they would sing to someone in the tribe who was dying, that would carry them to the tribal ancestral lands beyond death. That that world opens to you if you know that song and hear it as you die. But of course they weren't allowed to teach it to anyone else because the only people who should go to those tribal lands were members of the tribe. But here he was dying what to do. So he called them over and he said, although I have um, sworn an oath to never teach this to someone outside of my tribe, I must ask a great favor of you. I will teach it to you if you teach it to no one else so that you can sing me back to my people. And so as he died, they sang him this last song and sang Ishi back to his people. I feel like there's some way in which we are singing ourselves back to something beautiful and deep and wise and we help each other so much in this. It won't be that easy when you go back and you can feel how jangly you are after a few hours of talking today you know with people who've been quiet for a month or two and who understand what you're doing it's still not so easy. Um, There'll be huge emotional waves and ups and downs. Call your friends, remember sangha, take time alone, remember you're a newborn and don't um, go back and party. Nothing wrong with parties in their right season, but believe me, you'll regret it if you do. Go back and do quiet, beautiful things. Flower arranging, you know, walks on the beach, writing poetry, speaking to your beloved friends. Keep it simple as you can for the next month or two. Let it integrate slowly like the ocean gets deep. And remember that you carry in you some great sacred song that you learned in the silence, and in our chanting, and in the the sitting and walking that we've done together this spring. Um, And it's really the song that takes you back to your people, to your own true nature. So let your eyes close for a moment. We'll sit. Ajahn Chah asks us to find, he had a koan for us. He says, where is that place that is neither going forward nor moving backward nor standing still? If you can open to that place, you will find your way in all things. There'll be a quiz on that in the morning.